I was thinking in the last few minutes that I wanted us to start the tape right away because I thought about as we all spoke our intentions and our hopes and our um, concerns and our joys in these last moments. I thought about an episode, an episode, a moment uh, that I shared with my friend and my teacher and my uh, colleague, Sharon Salzberg. Some years ago, we were sitting in her house in uh, Barry, Massachusetts, and talking about this and that and the other thing. And many of you know that, uh, that uh, Sharon was one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Center in the early 1970s. And she remains now a, a vibrant and uh, wonderful teacher. And uh, she and I teach together every December on the East Coast. I look forward to it because I don't get a lot of chance to visit with her during the year. But I remember particularly we were sitting and talking one day in her in her house, and I said, uh, what do you suppose we're going to be doing, Sharon, when we're old women? <laughs> and maybe we had this conversation 20 years ago, because I remember the, her, her response right away. She said, I don't know. She said, maybe we'll sit around just praying for people. And it had, uh, th those were exactly the words that she said. And I remembered them because they're, they're so particular. First of all, it was, it was amazing to me. We said, just praying uh, for people. It could mean that that was our exclusive thing that we did, which is what I think that she meant. Because I think that's what, I, uh, that's what seems to me to be crucial in all of our spiritual practice to end up with um, an awareness and a heart and a beingness that's always tuned to what the rest of the world needs, not to the exclusion of oneself, but that freed from self-absorption, that our natural sense would be to look around, who are we sharing this planet with, and who can I help? Um, so exclusively doing that sounds fine to me. That one's whole entire life is lived in an awareness of interconnection and an awareness of how every single life makes a difference to every other life. And I like it that she said uh, praying for people because for... Uh, for whatever reasons, I think that we haven't used the word praying so much as Vipassana practitioners in the West, as mindfulness practitioners. There are various sociological reasons, I think, you know. Uh, uh, leaving those aside, we haven't used the word praying so much. Uh, but I think that... that uh, it occurred to me that every time, early on it occurred to me, on some retreat during some long period of intensive practice, that every time I sat down on my Zafu again, I was in fact, whether or not I thought it in my mind, explicitly in prayer words, I was sitting down hoping for a peaceful hour, hoping 
for my mind to not fall onto a knot that it hadn't yet untied, that it would have to start struggling with. That if I had said to myself in words what was probably going on in my mind every time I sat down, and yours too, may this be a peaceful hour for me. May I not remember my, my problem with so-and-so that's causing me such grief. May I not remember this worry with my child or my sister or my mother or my... May I have, or may I have a solution to the situation with my child or my sister or my mother or my father? I think every time we sit down uh, in the sense of prayer as a religious gesture, as a very uh, beginning uh, practitioner of mindfulness, I remember being on a retreat in Yucca Valley um, that at which Jack Cornfield was one of the teachers. And we had um, a large group, well, we had a large group in Yucca Valley. There's always way more than 100 people who come on retreat. But we had um, question and answer groups in a smaller number. And different teacher on the retreat was in charge of each group sometime in the day. And I remember being in such a group at, that was being led by Jack. And this was in the very late 1970s, and it was a time of tremendous religious renewal with lots of young people um, really being interested in religions that they hadn't known before. So people wearing costumes from various kinds of, uh, not new in the sense of in the world, but new in the sense of the United States, um, costumes that... Uh, identified them as followers of this guru or that guru or uh, this swami or another swami. But uh, all kinds of wonderful religious things were happening. And everybody wearing their medallions or their clothes or whatever that identified them as part of one of these, what people were calling new religions at the time. Buddhism was one of it, but it's not a new religion anymore. This is now 50 years later and it's different. But anyway, here's this group of people, and somebody, uh, somebody raised their hand and asked the question. They said, where is the bhakti in this kind of practice that we're doing? Bhakti is the word for uh, devotional. The, uh, where, where, where's the devotional aspect of this? They said, there's no, there's no bhakti here. No talking, no looking at people. No bowing, no singing, no chanting, no touching, no dancing, no nothing. Where is the bhakti in this practice? And Jack thought for a moment and then he said, you know, I think this is the most bhakti, the most devotional practice of all. He said, you sit down and you are in essence saying, here I am, God, do whatever you want with me. I love that. First of all, it's very erotic, do whatever you want with me. I, I mean, it is, it is, it is isn't it? it? It's like the Song of Songs. My, my, uh, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. Isn't that a wonderful line? Here I am, my feelings are available. Let me just experience whatever I need to experience. There's something very touching about that. Really, no diversion. Uh, even when we practice uh, formal metta practice in the sense of recitation of phrases, 
By the way, the recitation of phrases is not what the Buddha taught. That came much later in the history of Buddhism. The Buddha just said, that's it. Have nothing but kind thoughts in your heart and kind impulses for everyone. May all beings be peaceful and happy. May all beings be at ease is what the translation of the rep repetition line in the Metta Sutta is. That's the wish. Have in your heart no enmity so that you can really say and feel without any hesitation, may all beings be at ease. But what comes up from it is, a, which you could just do, if you could just do, what comes up in terms of, say, these phrases is an artifact. It's something that got made up later on that works very well. So, But we are, in fact, as we think, may all beings be, feel safe, may all beings feel happy, may all beings feel strong, may all beings live with ease, which I do a lot and practice a lot and teach a lot. We are, in fact, turning the mind in that direction as we do it. So it's a little bit, um, it is, in fact, directing the mind in a certain way. It's putting something into it. It's, uh, what does my friend Guy Armstrong calls it? Sweetening the mind. He said it's like developing a mind like... Uh, Frozen apple, uh, frozen orange juice, he said. Meta, a mind of metta is like frozen orange juice. Everything extra is pushed out of it and only the sweetness remains. That's such a good metaphor. I'm sure, I don't know. Well, we can't put it in the same sentence with the Buddha. Frozen orange juice is not a, was not a thing at that time. But to think about, uh, here I am. And, and what's implicit when we sit down is may I have a mind and a heart of peace and ease that dwells in wishing peace and ease to everyone. Because if my heart did that, I'd be a happy person. I'd be living in a peaceful universe, if not a peaceful on the, uh, what do you call it, on the everyday sense word. Uh, world. So I thought about that statement from Sharon uh, a long time ago. Um, maybe we'll sit around. It, it had some, oh, that was the other thing. Maybe we'll just sit around and pray for people. And I liked it because it said just and because it said sit around. Sit around has a casual feeling about it doesn't say just sit and pray for people. Sit around has a feeling of like lounging, you know, relaxing. When you say, what were you doing all day? I was sitting around with my friends praying for people. You know, that, but suppose the whole world sat around and prayed for each other. We all could. Everybody's got fathers and mothers and children and sisters in trouble and, or even in difficulty. If you think about dying isn't in trouble if you're if you're if you're an old person, a really old person, you're supposed to at some point die out of this world, but to die easily, to die easily, and surrounded by your friends and not frightened. We all want that a lot. I didn't think I'd start there. Actually, I brought something that I was going to start with, so now we'll go there. But I think it's all that. I th my, my guess is that even if I go and look at, my, <laughs> look at what I plan to say, it'll come back to that because it's all that. There isn't anything other than that.
So I was thinking about a number of things that I wanted to somehow bring into today's teaching um, because a number of you know, a lot of you know that I was last week not here because I was in Washington, D.C. learning how to lobby. That was great. I loved it. I'm going to tell you about it. I'm not going to start there, but I will tell you about it. I was thinking, I want to talk about the lobbying. I want to talk about, um, I want to talk what's going on in the news these days. I want to talk um, a number of things, all of which I could put under the rubric of talking about renunciation. I was talking about, I was thinking about how does this become a Buddhist teaching? And I was thinking about one of the attributes of human beings that seems to me so amazing. Uh, there, there was presumably 10 attributes of, um, 10 capacities of mind that the Buddha in the folklore about the Buddha was said to have fully developed in his previous incarnations before his life as Siddhartha Gautama. I think it's a very useful rubric to think about. The 10 are uh, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, truthfulness, truthfulness, Uh, uh, truthfulness, energy, energy, a loving kindness, equanimity, and I missed one. Uh, wisdom. wisdom. I said wisdom. Okay, we go in the beginning. Generosity, renunciation, wis generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom. Let's put patience there. Effort, truthfulness. Uh, I didn't say energy yet. Ever is the same as energy. Uh, and the last two, loving kindness and equanimity. That's not good. I wrote a book about them. I'm supposed to remember. I, yeah, no, no, no. It'll come to me. How could I have missed? Okay, it'll come. I usually remember them because they're in a certain order. What? Concentration. No, it's not. No, 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 no. Should I go get no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Determination, ta-da! <laughs> At this point, it's a matter of honor. I wrote a book about it. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in short, they are all permutations of each other, and I can actually do them as permutations of each other. But what I want to talk about is this pivotal one about renunciation. We can decide not to do something when we have an impulse to do it on all kinds of levels. We can decide to restrain ourselves. I, I listened to the news this morning, uh, the local news on uh, KTVU. And a number of people in the Bay Area died last night because other people shot them. Personally, they got mad at them and shot them. I think to myself, you know, we don't, that's, 
you think, well, people could have controlled themselves. It's, it's scary, actually. There's so many guns around, and people use them purposely. One out of four women is a victim of um, domestic violence. I, you know, I thought about that a lot. That seems to be the statistic that people have agreed on. I, you know, I don't know anybody, but maybe we live in special circumstances and a special culture. I think the violence is probably, I don't know. I'm not a sociologist. I don't want to even finish that sentence. But that's a frightful statistic. Uh, in the United States, one out of four women. But so I was thinking about all the different levels, because it's been in the news all with football players. 56 football players in the NFL was cited for different kinds of infractions. And you think, and then they showed, a, they showed a clip of people doing, I'm surprised because the last time I was in a discussion about um, football violence was a number of years ago, and somebody had been very strident about how football was a terrible sport before we all got to thinking about maybe it's a serious thing to look at football, you know. Uh, I remember the, the conversation as it all came up recently because one of the other people in the room with the conversation was a high school coach and I was wishing that this person was not going on so vigorously about uh, how murderous a sport it was, but Maybe training people to be so aggressive has something to do with, I don't know. I certainly think I could, I could feel right about saying when there are people who are heroes for young people and they do domestic violence, that that's a really a thing that we could all agree is not a good role model for young people growing up. Whether it's the football that made it, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't know. There are a lot of football players who don't do domestic violence. So I, I think it's, that, that's too facile an equation for me. But that people in positions of prominence that young people venerate, idolize, and I'm sad about that. So I don't know what's going to... Anyway, I, it's just a, a whole thing of could we change a culture of that's ready to fight to a culture that's peaceful? But I thought we would start with could we give up instead of getting up to give up violence. Let's just start with what can we give up? I was thinking about it also because um, today is Rosh Hashanah. Tonight when, uh, tonight, when the sun sets, it will become the first day of the year in the Hebrew calendar, 5775. So we only think it's 2014. It's actually 5775. I'm sure by the Chinese counting, it's another number. And then by the Mayan calendar, it's another number. And there's some way in which today is always the first day of the rest of your life. But the thing is that uh, uh, on New Year's days, people think about, okay, I'm put, turning over a new leaf in the new year. How many people here have ever made resolutions on December 31st? 
that they're going to do such and such in the new year. Go to the gym four times a week, not eat sugar, um, give up cigarettes. Most of us have done that now. There's re that's really changed. Um, Mostly when people think about renunciation, it's a, of a, of a, a substance habit, the, the use of some substance that isn't good for you the, to the point of addiction. And um, really destruction of relationships. Uh, only recently have people begun to talk uh, about uh, uh, being addicted to um, gossiping or addicted to television or seriously addicted to cell phones. Seriously addicted to cell phones. Do you, uh, did you, anybody leave their cell phone home today? <laughs> we were sitting, we were five minutes into sitting. If you had your eyes open, you would have noticed I turned around and turned off my cell phone because I was sitting here and I wasn't thinking about it. I was sitting with my mind resting peacefully in the moment. And the thing that minds do when they rest peacefully in the moment is they suddenly catch you up on what you didn't do. So I wasn't thinking, where's my cell phone and did I turn it off? But I was sitting here peacefully and all of a sudden, ding dong, you didn't turn off your cell phone. So. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, it's a good thing to uh, to think about uh, uh, the the uh, the concern that young, that educators are having about the ubiquitous use of cell phones is that children uh, growing up with cell phones are less uh, are less able or uh, inclined to make conversation with the person next to them. They talk to, they look at their cell phone and talk. I took a photo with my um, uh, iPad where you can pre be pretending to take a photo of the scenery and actually take a photo of people on a, um, on a, uh, on a, on a ferry in Venice last year. So those of you who know Venice know that to get from point A to point B, uh, around Venice, there are islands that are part of the city of Venice or that connected to it because people go to school on one island and they're on the other island or they go, live in Murano and come over to the main island for their high school. And I got on one of those ferries uh, last spring at a time that it stopped at a stop where a high school had just left off and four people who looked 16, 17 years old sat down exactly opposite me. So here's one side of this boat moving forward. Here's the other side of the boat. And no, you're not looking out there. You're looking at who's sitting across the space from you on the small boat. Four of them sit down and they all take out their cell phones. And the photo that I took of the four of them, nice looking young people, and not a word passed between them the whole time. They, they talked here. Da, 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 da. They didn't talk to each other. It's a very interesting thing. I don't know. On the one hand, I think that's I, I love the concept of cell phones. I think, and I've said it here on one, maybe way many occasions, my great hope with the cell phones is the hope that somebody will figure the ultimate way, 
the ultimate tweet that will somehow cause everybody to stop for a day everything what they're doing, or maybe for longer, and say, let's stop killing each other. And, the, and then they'd say the third noble truth of the Buddha, peace is possible, it's our world to inherit, stop fighting. And then they'll say it in such a cogent way in 140 characters that the whole world will suddenly retweet and we'll have peace. Don't you think that would be a great thing? But you need somebody who's young, but has the charism of Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela or Pope Francis or somebody. Maybe Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama should send a joint treat, tweet to everybody in the world. But so I, I really, I think this is ma amazing. I can take a piece of plastic out of my pocket and call a friend of mine in the south of France and have a conversation in, I can't have it here, the satellite's not here, but if I ride over to Fairfax, I can have a conversation. That's magic. But what really is a concern is nobody can put them away and, and leave them there. There's actually a new movie out where somebody has to retrain somebody to have, I can't remember the name of it, I saw the trailer for it the other day. How to retrain a person to, to know social mores, how to say thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure being with you, and the regular things that you say to people. So anybody knows what movie it is? I just saw a trailer about that. So I'll let you know when I know. So here we come, coming on New Year's, and what kinds of things would we give up? Many of my friends who are uh, Sabbath observant in a traditional way turn off all their machinery on Friday evening and turn it back on on Saturday night. Sundown to sundown, they don't answer their telephone or read their email or turn on the computer or, in fact, turn on the television. So people are already plotting and planning what if there should be a playoff game on Saturday and, uh, and what if something something it's something about what if something I read this in the Washington Post what it, it's quite conceivable that some major game I'm not sure if it's a football game or a baseball game will happen on Yom Kippur Sandy Koufax did not pitch on Yom Kippur in the height of his pitching uh, nor did Hank Greenberg play because it was a game on Yom Kippur. It's the Holy of Holies Day. I, I, this is all from reading the Washington Post. When Hank Greenberg did not play and went into his synagogue, he got a standing ovation. I never heard of anybody doing a standing ovation on Yom Kippur either, on the holiest of days. But all of this is, is uh, it's interesting lore to say, can you, can, you, can you do something like not play in a World Series or a, or a major football game or whatever. No, that would have been in a World Series. But can you not do something for a day? Every week they have a Sabbath day. My friends tell me the world stays in its orbit, everything works, whether or not you turn off your computer. <laughs> the, always the thing that's the crucial question from the point of therapies with, where there's addiction is a question, is how will you feel if you give this up? What will come up for me? What will be the difficulty? What will you feel? What's the feeling that you can't abide having 
so that you keep on doing the addiction. You know, it's clear if, uh, if you're wanting to withdraw yourself from a, a narcotic or uh, a painkiller that you've needed to have, and uh, either for physical pain or mental pain, and you go off it, you have a lot of anguish about it. You have the physical pain, you have the mental pain, and you also have the pain of withdrawal from various substances. So it's very, very hard to give up physical addiction to things. The, what you have to go through in that withdrawal period is very, very hard. I remember thinking early on in my experience with going to a lot of retreats, I couldn't go to any very long retreats because uh, I couldn't take, I, I was 41 years old, I think, when I first went to my first meditation retreat. So I, I, had, a, I had a family, I had a partner, I had a, uh, I had a full practice as a, as a psychotherapist. I couldn't just go away for a month or three months. So I went to every retreat that I could. Uh, I, I, at some public talk sometime in the last decade uh, or two, I made the comment, that, talking about that, that I went to every retreat that I could go to that I could fix in, I could put somehow in my schedule so my family wouldn't notice. And uh, in the question and answer period afterwards, comment period, somebody in my family got up and said, just to put the record right, you know, we noticed, actually. <laughs> but I didn't go off for any long periods of time, but I loved, I loved being on retreat. I really, I love it now, being on retreat. It's fantastic. How many people here have been on retreat? There you go. So just a few have not. It's fantastic. You realize after two days that what's missing is the phone didn't ring. You haven't heard a phone ring in two days. You have not checked your phone machine, you know. People could in their rooms <laughs> check, or they could walk on the top of the hills where there is satellite reception. But if you honestly don't do that, it's amazing. After two or three days, your mind goes, phew, nobody's going to call me. I'm not going to know about another skirmish that I have to be involved in one way or another. And the mind feels better, and then it starts to do all kinds of other healing and restorative things, which are the reason that you're there, not to get over your addiction to stuff, but to really untie some of the tangles in your mind that are keeping you from living a full, loving life. So I remember really uh, being on retreat sometime and feeling wonderful there. I just love to be on retreat. I like the silence, I like the food, everything about it. I like the teachings. And I remember starting to have fantasies about taking robes and imagining getting my head shaved and imagine taking robes for some period of time, and I love those fantasies. And then I thought, that's not going to happen, you know? First of all, I have this whole complex family life, and, and second of all, I'm a Jew, and Jews don't suddenly, mostly, some of them do, actually. I know a few who a long time ago became Buddhist nuns, but mostly... I, since I'm, uh, since I, I really grew up in a very Jewish context that I'm still involved with, so I didn't want to stop being a Jew. So I can't be a Jewish Buddhist nun. So that doesn't work. 
So I decided that I couldn't be a nun, but really what I wanted was a nun life. I couldn't actually have that either. But I thought I could have a nun mind. I could have a nun mind if I actually decided that I was going to not renounce food or not renounce in having a family. If I was going to renounce greed, hatred, and delusion, that would be the renunciation. If I would really to set myself earnestly towards the business of what we're trying to do, robes or no robes, everybody's in the same business. If we sat here with nuns, they're not doing anything different inside than what we're doing. We are trying to avoid that each juncture in the mind where it says you can go down road A and here, here comes something that happens. You see a headline and it, it uh, makes, these, uh, makes uh, annoyance arise. How does His Holiness say it? So something happens. Something isn't going the way you think it should go. Anger arises, he says, just like that. Anger arises. He does his little laugh. <laughs> and then there's a pause where everybody's thinking, wow, the Dalai Lama still has anger arising. And after a little pause, he says, but it doesn't have to be a problem. <laughs> That's it. Anger arises. And you say, whoa, anger arose. Not going there. Going another way. Fixing the situation. Saying what's on my mind in a, in a way that works and makes a difference with people. But not going that way. We get to make that choice a million times, a, well, that's a little hyperbole, but many times a day. Many times a day, you get onto the freeway and it's very crowded and you start to feel annoyed. Too many people, they should be carpooling. I'm not carpooling when I have that thought, you know. That, uh, but we have, we have gratuitous annoyed thoughts like, like that one. Or we have annoyed thoughts. They shouldn't be doing this road work just in the compute, in commute hours. Well, when should they do it? You know, they have to do it. But every time that the mind is about to be indignant, you have that about-to moment where uh, something unpleasant arises, and you're about to be indignant and have a should voice, you know, shouldn't be this, shouldn't be that. It is this, and it is that. And to say, I'm about to have a should moment, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I am just going to be relaxed. I've been reading a lot of um, a man whose monk name is Vimalaramsi. Vimalaramsi. Spelled like that, exactly. Bhante Villamarasi. Did I bring it? So anyway, I printed out because it's available online. The whole of a book. by him. of uh, It's a compilation of uh, uh, Dharma talks he's given. And I've been very, very influenced by it. You can do it too. Vimala. V-I-M-I-L-A. Vilama Ramsi. R-A-M-S-I. And if you look it up online, you can uh, download the whole of his book. And it's very interesting because the principal thing he says is uh, really what you're trying to do is cultivate a mind of peace and ease and pay attention to the arising of anything that disrupts the peace and ease. 
I've been saying for a long time, this is what Ajahn Amaro has been saying, these are both contemporary Buddhist monk teachers that really, you start with, now I'll relax and I'll relax my mind. That's actually the intention to renounce what's ever in it that's occupying it. So that, or, and, and tie, keeping it held hostage and away from relaxing. So the, the idea, as I read it, and I'm very, very um, interested in it, particularly because I recognize that it was my principal practice for a long time uh, before I read this, that attention to the breath was something that I know how to do and can do and can teach and find helpful to myself when my mind is too full of stuff to actually rest in this moment. So I, a little bit of attention to breath is actually valuable to me, and it's wonderful to find. I don't do so much concentration at my, I, that's not, a, bringing it to my nostrils it does not work for me, but bringing my attention to my whole body breathing in the rib cage and in the shoulders, just my sense of myself sitting here as a breathing body. That's very nice to bring my attention back here. It usually relaxes my mind enough so that what's ever occupying it falls away, and then you just relax. There isn't any reason to hold on to breath, I think, except to develop and cultivate more and more intense um, levels of concentration. Sometimes there are some reasons, sometimes, and sometimes it's appropriate, to cultivate um, a more concentrated um, mind state. For dwelling in day-to-day -day awareness in a world with other people, what I'd like is the capacity moment to moment to make the decision, don't go there, stay here, don't go there, stay here. Keeps me in this level of interrelated life all the time, so that uh, you couldn't even say that I have an altered state of consciousness, although it's altered from getting easily distraught. It's, that's, that's the altar. You can't see it. I don't look like I'm, I, I hope I go around in that most of the time, but you know, it, it doesn't have any zoned out sense about it. I don't have to sit down to do it. I can, I can go to a supermarket, I can drive on a freeway, I can be in a conversation. So I run, what, it, uh, what, I think, um, what I think of it as doing apropos of becoming a nun is um, that that idea of I'll develop a mind that really is um, resting as much as it can in equanimity and in attention to not being caught by anything um, startling that happens. I've discovered that I've been saying the word startling for a couple of years now. I think, and not only because I think of myself as an easily startled person. Some people startle more easily than others. I think um, when babies are born, they do that APCAR test to see that, it, that he or she actually Responds, and I always used to joke about apropos of my being an easy worrier that I would have had some APCAR score if they would have done it. But I'm not sure that, that you know that might that might be that might not be just a, 
uh, that my nervous system is good. It might be that my nervous system, for one reason or other, is overactive. But uh, whatever it is, what I'm, what I'm happy about is I think my nervous system at this point is not overactive. You know, it's, it, has its, it has traces of its vigilance. It sees itself, I've said this so many times, the, the, the habit of thinking catastrophic thoughts where the event itself is not at this moment catastrophic is not gone from my mind. I could easily... Um, <laughs> There's a beginning of a Mel Brooks movie that starts with a Russian folk tune with people singing the words, hope for the best, expect the worst, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. So I have a little bit that mind. But, uh, but, you know, I just see it as I have a little bit that mind. You know, everybody's got the certain talents, certain capacities, certain strengths, certain other tendencies. So not to mind it, say, that's what I've got. Somebody was telling me the other day about what they have. They said, you know, I, I seem to be chronically frightened. And this is a long-term practitioner who also said to me, you know what? I was always sort of hoping to uh, have the courage to get through this fear. He said, you know, now I've changed it. To, I would like to have the courage to live with this fear. I'm chronically frightened. I just have a different neurology than other people. I don't want to make it a bad thing, you know? I'm, I, I'm not confined to my home. I live a regular life. I'm just chronically frightened. It would be an amazing thing. My, my friend Joseph Goldstein has said similar things so many times. I have this, I have that, and the sky is blue. That's the way it is, you know? That, that it doesn't need to be a big deal. It doesn't need to be a big deal. Everybody's got stuff. You have stuff? that you could say about yourself? Chronically this, chronically that. So I'm going to tell you one, but think about it, because I'm going to come back and ask you what your stuff is in a minute. Um, because I want to tell you one more example that has to do with going to Washington, because I was so interested in this. Many of you know that I went to Washington uh, uh, to, um, to be on a panel, and I was on a panel last Thursday night, at uh, Metropolitan Methodist Church in the middle of the District of Columbia, D.C., uh, with Tara Brock, who many of you know is the mindfulness teacher who's founded the Mindfulness Community Insight uh, Meditation Community of Washington, and um, was a good friend for many years, and. Um, Tim Ryan, who's a congressperson from uh, Ohio, who's, a, who's written a book called Mindful Nation. You can probably buy it in a bookstore about um, his own practice of mindfulness, his dedication to the practice of mindfulness, his introduction of it into uh, his work. And I'm uh, fairly sure that it was Tim who, and his office that was behind setting up a weekly mindfulness meditation session in, I guess, the building that's the Congress, that's the uh, representative's office building. And on Mondays from 1.30 to 2 in that building, there's a mindfulness meditation half hour session. And uh, I'm not sure 
who goes there. I, I imagine representatives and their staff. But, you know, a fair number of people come every Monday, which I find very heartening, people catching their breath in the middle of difficult work. So that was, a, that was the focus of being there on Thursday. But I went on Monday, and since I was going, and it was advertised in Washington that I was going to be there on Thursday, I got invited to a, a group of mindfulness meditators at St. James Episcopal Church on Monday night, just after we landed in uh, Washington. And on Tuesday night, I was invited by a congregation, Addis Israel, which is the largest conservative con Jewish congregation in Washington. And on Thursday, I taught at the Metropolitan Church. So three different churches, three different venues. Uh, I taught three different things. You, teach a, you, you take the same material and you make it appropriate. In the, in the synagogue, I talked about um, uh, moral inventory, because that's actually what you do at the end of the year in these 10 days between tonight and Yom Kippur, which is a week from Saturday. And uh, I mentioned earlier that moral inventory is one of the things that the mind does spontaneously when you give it a little chance to settle down and relax. And it says you forgot to tell, turn off your cell phone. And then if I sat more, it'd probably tell me you forgot to call this one back and you forgot to do this. And last week you heard somebody's feelings and you really should call up and make amends for that. And I find that so appealing as a human capacity, that capacity to have your own mind tell you what you have to go fix up. I'm, I love the idea that our minds feel better when we're good. The bliss of blamelessness is what the Buddha called it. I feel very good that human beings are mostly strung by that. Sometimes we find tyrannical people, sometimes we find people who are able to do and motivated to do really terrible things on people. So I don't want to say, a, you know, blanket everybody is good. Not everybody is good. For whatever reasons, neurologically, culturally, familially, what happened to them in this life. But I'm, I'm actually prepared to say most people's hearts are inclined to the good. If most people open their, most people I know and that you know, if we opened our door in the morning and found an abandoned infant on our front steps, We'd, uh, crying. We'd pick it up, wouldn't we? we? We would. We'd pick it up, we'd take care of it, we'd call authorities, we'd you know, manage to get it taken care of. That's what we do. We do it with wounded animals. We, we do that. I think compassion is wired into us as a species. I think that's why we're still here. Anyway, here I was, and I did, uh, among the things I did while in the day while I was there, is I went lobbying with the Peace Alliance that was sponsoring the Thursday talk along with other organizations. And uh, we, uh, we had a little training about lobbying and then I went with four people um, to uh, uh, various appointments with uh, three representatives to Congress and one senator. In no instance was the actual elected official there. But we did talk to staff people who were high up with them, who were versed in what we were talking about. It was very interesting to me to watch myself uh, sit down at a table in someone's office. And I had to, I said very little, because I don't know that much about the particular bill that was, I do know now about the bill they were advocating for. 
but I was listening to exactly how they chose to present and offer answers. And not all of the offices that we visited uh, represented either one side or the other of the aisle. They were both sides. And I was aware of feeling different about because I feel certain people have my point of view and other people have the other point of view. I was really surprised to find that I felt different going into these different places, like here I should really be careful what I say and these people are my friend. And I, when I got in there, I noticed a couple of things. First of all, the staff people are uniformly young, smart as anything, well-prepared, particularly well-versed in how to behave, nice, present. I came away feeling so buoyed up about this world. This country is probably in a better shape than I think it is. A lot of well-meaning young people trying very hard to make this a good country. And I felt really good, all these nice, smart people. You don't get to have jobs as a chief of staff for this one or that one or the other one. If you're not wise and smart and good, anyway. So that was very uplifting. I also noticed how careful and correct the Peace Alliance people, who I know share my politics, uh, behaved exactly the same with everybody. They're not behaving adversarial or uh, defensive about anything. Anyway, we, fin we finished all that, and I found that tremendously uplifting and edifying. I, I actually said to uh, Representative Ryan, Congressman Ryan, at the end of Thursday night, I said, uh, you ought to write a book called Mindful Lobbying. Because honestly, you need to be mindful. You go in, and in certain places, you really relax, because you know these guys are our friends. Here you feel not so relaxed. But on the outside, you don't see any of this. And I'm sure everybody feels a little bit like my side, your side. But everybody behaves perfectly. So then they said, why don't you, uh, I, I dropped in Barbara Box's office with, I said, let's go to Barbara Boxer. She's my, per I voted for Barbara Boxer when she ran for the Tamalpais Union School Board <laughs> it, 45 years ago or something. Anybody voted for Barbara when she was running for the school board? My, for, when I came to California, that's what was happening 50 years ago. So... Uh, uh, they said uh, the senator is uh, testifying in the Foreign Relations Committee hearing, in the, which is up on the television in this office. They said, why don't you go to the hearing? I said, can you just go, just like this? You just walk in? They said, yeah, just walk in. I was very, very buoyed up by the fact that to get into that building, and we went up and we went in. Uh, we didn't have to show anything. We just got waved in. And I thought, this is amazing. We came into this building by putting my bag onto a conveyor belt, and it went through a machine that looked at it, and I walked through a scanner. But nobody said, what's your name? You didn't sign in. Nobody said, what's your business here? Anybody can walk in and watch the government happen, and then just walk into the, you don't get any kind of a badge or a visitor or anything. Just walk into the foreign relations. I'm sitting three rows behind John Kerry as he's testifying. And I was very buoyed up by the whole democracy in action. There were demonstrators uh, in the hearing room carrying uh, fairly garish signs who were trying to get behind Senator Kenny, uh, Secretary Kerry, 
when he was talking so that he'd be, they'd be in the television. And television, meantime, is very cleverly taking pictures of him without any of the demonstrators. And as long as they kept themselves pretty reserved and didn't shout out, they have ca uh, Capitol Police standing on either side, but everybody looking very plain. Nothing passes by the, you know, even the police are just like that. And, um, and I listened to the questioning, and some of it was really uh, soliciting answers, and some of it was just a chance to do political posturing and make um, really derogative remarks about uh, we wouldn't be in this problem in, uh, in the Middle East if the president had done this and this. It was just a, just a long presentation of a political point of view. And I'm thinking, whoa, I'm getting really agitated listening to it. And I watched Secretary Kerry listen, and then he took one little piece from that whole polemic, and he said, well, you know, on that piece, I just want to point out that the facts are da 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 And he left the whole other screed just alone, you know. And I thought to myself, wow. And I thought, this must be a small fry compared to what he's doing every other day, flying here or there or there or there. And I had tremendous respect for that kind of equanimity that you, apparent equanimity. I think, it must, I think it must be some real presence because you can't do that day after day unless you have somehow uh, uh, nerves of steel and... Uh, or nerves of complete ease, and you know, uh, maybe wisdom, maybe both. Certainly, a lot of training. But I came away with a lot, a lot of respect, and um, and an interest in going back and doing it again. So we'll see. But I thought to myself, that was a really uh, uh, what was what was interesting for me is. Uh, people say about I'm getting fairly known to be a person who uh, is uh, in my teaching trying very much to not position mindfulness practice out of the day like should I practice in the morning and then practice in the evening that the whole day is practice every single interchange is practice every appointment that you walk into everybody that you meet it's all practice in keeping your, one's mind, one's heart fairly balanced in order to be able to take in the situation fully and um, be able to respond to it wisely. Not, uh, I think what it is actually, if I start out to say this is about renunciation, it's about renouncing the impulse to respond right away. Uh, <laughs> There's a new movie out called This Is Where I Leave You. And there was a very big article about it in Time magazine, which I read the other morning. And I hadn't heard of it. And it was playing only one place in the county. And I was free that evening, so I went to see it. And it, 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 I liked it a lot. It's a, it's, a, it's a story about a family in which uh, the father dies and his... Four adult, four adult children come from various places for the week of mourning. It's a Jewish family, so that period of shiva, of people coming together. The mother, 
the widow is Jane Fonda. So I thought this was another reminder of uh, time flies. <laughs> now, and Jane Fonda is fantastically beautiful as an older woman. And so they're all very talented actors, and it's a very complex plot in which, you know, like any film about a family reunion, it comes to pass that there are lots of ghosts in all the closets, and, um, and everybody is doing all kinds of things that normally, well, anyway, would come to light as transgressions. And in the end, uh, in the end, it was interesting because uh, my husband couldn't go with me, and afterward he said, was it an upbeat movie? And it's a movie about a shiva where everybody's transgressions come to light. So I said, you know, it was because everything was presented in such a way that all the carrying on, all of this, all of that, it was so clear that all of these were people with good intent, with good heart. And if, it's, if someone were to say, could you give a one-sentence summary of it, it's that well, everybody screws up. Everybody's doing the best they can, and everybody screws up. And that the best thing we can do is to say about ourselves, you know, I screwed up again, so now I'll try, I, I'll try, I won't, I, you know, I'll, I'll pull it together. That's what was upbeat about it, is that human beings are complex people, they're leaving complex lives and they do all kinds of things. And the somehow intent to keep on going. I thought of it right now because one of the key parts of the plot is, I was talking about renunciation, is you can have a thought and not express it. Two of the people in this family have a certain kind of psychological dynamic when they can't have a thought and not express it. They express everything. <laughs> and so you kind of see what happens when everybody just expresses everything. Uh, but in the long run, somebody says at one point, uh, it's, it's kind of pseudo-psychologies or something now. We wouldn't say this. There was a time in the 1980s where letting it all hang out was uh, the, the, the crux of psychology, I think, or modern psychology in those 10 years, before people got the idea that it would be better if people <laughs> held it in a little bit. You know? <laughs> and the Buddha having said, among other sages, before admonishing anyone, this is a good place to end because this is a nice thing that the Buddha said, before admonishing anyone, one should reflect that thus, in due season will I speak, not out of season. In kindness will I speak, not in anger. For this person's benefit will I speak, not for his or her loss. Uh, gently will I speak, not harshly. And in truth will I speak, not in falsehood. And somebody once said to me about that. I used to have that framed in a, you know, when I when I had a psychotherapy practice. I had that framed on a on a little table in my office, and people would take it home and Xerox it and put it on their refrigerator. But a lot of people said, you know, if you reflected on all that stuff before you admonished, you'd probably never admonish. You wouldn't get around to admonishing. They say that could be a good thing, you know that. You could tell people stuff and not admonish them. You could say, you know what, this or that doesn't work for me, but you don't have to admonish. So maybe that's what we could say, that uh, the internal nun is the non-admonisher.
Well, I love being back, but I think I'm not back next week. Isn't that true? When am I back again? I don't know. In October. Next week's October. I think two Donalds and then you. Two Donalds and me. Somehow we, put, we, we worked it out so that we both were here the same amount of time. But I, I miss you when I'm not here. So anyway, so two Donalds and me. So then I want to tell you that I really hope. First of all, look out tonight, and you, you, you won't see a moon, I think. If you look just before sunset, because you have to, presumably you get to see the day one of the new moon, but usually it's twilight and it sets, so you, but you'll start to see it tomorrow. So we have the new moon of the year 5775. Make a resolution if it's good for you. But, you know, the people who get up every morning and say the precepts are making the same resolutions every day because it's the next day of their life. So that's a good thing to do, too. And we'll see what major sports event is happening. On. <laughs> May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering.